And we're back. I'm Gravy Bro. I'm here with Jamal Carsandu, and we are screen off script. This week, we're getting into Saw X, Anatomy of the Fall, and reflecting all the major movie and TV news of the week. Hello, everyone. You have played your last con game, but not your last game. Out of all the men to cheat, you picked John Frame. Live or die, the choice is yours. <laughs> All right, Jumbled, we're back. And uh, so, yeah, heads up, we're doing actually like three reviews essentially this week. We got both of us saw Anatomy of the Fall. We're going to be talking about that. I watched Saw X. I'll be giving you my thoughts. Jumbled watched Humanist Vampire. Uh, and he'll give you the whole title because, frankly, that's a whole vibe within itself. I mean, that's what got me in the door at TIFF. It's true. Humanist Vampire Seeking Consenting Suicidal Person. Yeah, and it's a great title. I actually regret not watching it, to be honest. But uh, yeah, we'll get into that in a little bit. First thing we're going to do is get into the news, as always. So first thing, Mm. interesting news. And for me, I'm glad we got to record today because we get to talk about this kind of as it's happening. A24 is looking to expand into making more commercial films and is searching for action and big IP projects. Obviously, I think the initial thought is like A24 is like this art house uh, studio that just makes like really great but weird movies that mm. like find its niche like they're almost like really great at finding these niches yeah and then people just kind of flock to it. it word of mouth all the kind of stuff that you like hope for as far as being like a great film that's not a franchise film that happens so consistently with a24 yeah and now they're kind of moving into a new space what are your thoughts now that i've had a few hours to actually absorb it and digest it i actually think overall this is i'm kind of taking it as positive mm-hmm. Um, for a few different reasons. Um, number one, it's exciting to have a studio like A24 jump into the big IP franchise space because they've literally been dominated by the Warner Brothers, the Disneys and the Universals of the world, Yeah, right? Number one. So for them to bring their talent and their producers and their executives and the people and the filmmakers that they work with kind of into that world, I think might give a nice jolt to that for the franchise and the big IP world, number one. Number two, I actually think that if some of these big IP movies do commercially well, it should hopefully funnel and fund more of the art house projects that we're kind of known A24. So hopefully, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, if these movies make money, it's only going to fund more movies and more projects like that. So I think overall it's a positive thing. All right. So pessimistically speaking, that's nice in theory. Yes. But like once a studio starts making big money off big movies and big IPs and stuff, I'm sure they're not thinking like, well, how can we funnel this into like creative projects that'll satiate our more like niche audience? Like they don't give a crap, right? Like that doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense, but I kind of agree with the first point you made Mm. where the interesting thing, I actually hope uh, that they almost like create like two different mini like subsets of the studio, like A24 classic, A24 like XL, (laughs) whatever the hell you call it, right? Like, like A25, if you really want, like whatever it is, right? Because at the end of the day, it would be a great thing to have a studio that we really kind of now value for their their like curating process and like their their ability to edit themselves into mm. like projects that are really, really interesting. I could imagine that thought process working really well on a bigger scale. Yeah. I don't see why that would, wouldn't work. And if anything, you're right. Like it should actually shake up just the franchise world in general or like the big studio world in general because they'll i think it's almost like whenever there's like a new dog in town like especially a studio like a24 where they'll be able to like especially like their first couple i'm sure they'll be trying they'll swing for the fences but on a massive scale Mm. so i absolutely love that idea 
But at the same time, I just worry about like the idea of execution because at the end of the day, it does change what A24 is. It changes its perception. Every time I see A24 show up on screen before a movie, especially if I don't even know it's an A24 movie, it gets me hyped. Yeah. I hope that continues for as long as possible. Yeah. And it's no doubt A24 has been our favorite studio for since we started this project. Uh, we Every time we talk about A24 movie, we initially have that enthusiasm, that positive sentiment. Yeah. And, and I'm just trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, me too, me too. I feel like, you know, across the board, whether it's, you know, changing how big franchise movies and big blockbuster movies are made, how they're perceived, fantastic. But like what got them to the dance? I just, again, I think trying not to be pessimistic, trying to be more kind of you know positive about it. I just don't see them veering too far away from that. Yeah. If they have more money to play with, fantastic. Absolutely. Not only that, but like if you think about like the directors that they work with, just giving those same directors more resources doesn't seem like a bad idea 100%. either. Like if you give the Daniels $100 million to work with, I'm sure they could come up with something amazing. Mm-hmm. So I don't see this being like a bad play on their part yeah. I, th- I think at the end of the day it's probably gonna be better for cinema in general like overall and, and they already have to to some extent experience with franchises very much in the horror genre so to see them explore that and kind of expand that into different genres and different ips would be very interesting as well yeah absolutely but yeah speaking of big franchises we just got to get through our uh you know every time there's superhero news it feels like it comes in bunches so i feel <laughs> yeah. like i have a bunch of stuff to talk about for that but the first thing is uh first marvel this is like relatively new information but uh, marvel has fired the writers and directors of daredevil born again the series is now undergoing a significant creative reboot initially it had become a legal procedural that did not resemble the netflix version known for its action and violence daredevil didn't even show up in costume until episode four so yeah that's first off as a daredevil fan does that I don't know, get you excited, pissed off? What do you think? You know, this this whole project, since it began, I've kind of gone through my emotions with it. Because yeah, you don't care anymore, do you? Like right now... I bet you don't care. It's at the lowest point. <laughs> yeah. Because I don't know, I know you don't watch the Netflix uh, MCU shows, but they were, I mean, they were fantastic. And, Net, and the Daredevil show on Netflix was absolutely phenomenal. And to see the whole kind of crew to a lesser extent, mostly the, the on-camera or the on, on-screen actors come through, I thought, okay, cool. Maybe they're going to take this, you know, whole... In a fandom of the Netflix series forward and hearing this yeah and it could also just be in general they are like yo we've got to take a, a step back now most of our shows aren't resonating with an audience and so yeah. maybe right now we should just like hit the pause button and figure out what we're trying to do moving forward speaking of which Marvel Studios uh, also mentioned that they're changing how they make TV shows first they're going to have showrunners who will write pilots and show bibles they're going to have full-time TV execs and they're moving away from the limited series format to multi-season serialized tv i don't know if that gets me if i'm being honest like it doesn't really do anything for me like Mm. none of this news makes me care about any of this if i'm being honest like really what has to happen like i still haven't started loki by the way so just keep that in for context but uh, at the same time i'm just waiting for something to make me care yeah until i care like i just like i don't even i wouldn't even have watched the show if i'm being honest like even now like i don't i probably won't even watch the show yeah um uh, but they're gonna have to do something to make me either give a crap or I'm just sticking to the movies. Yeah, I don't blame you. I yeah. think that's how most people feel about yeah. the MCU right now. Like, I've watched the first episode of Loki. I thought it was fantastic. Um, with other shows, I've been waiting for them to all drop so I can just binge it. Yeah. But I've not really been paying attention to them because they don't require my full attention. It's something I can just throw in in the background. Yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day, quality is everything. If you produce a good show, whether we tune in week by week or gets word of mouth, like I feel like they've got to do a complete 180 because sentiment right now is so damn low. Yeah, it's funny too because um, today we'll get into why, but I was basically forced to watch the trailer for The Marvels. 
So, uh, so I basically saw that and, uh, yeah, ahead of that, now I kind of have like a little bit more, I feel like I have a realistic anticipation for it. Right. And, uh, did it improve? No, not really. It, I didn't it think feels it like, it feels yeah. like the exact same movie I've been watching for the past couple of years. Yeah. For Marvel. Yeah. yeah okay. All the same beats. Yeah. Like I, I know what the jokes are going to be. I know how it's going to work and yeah, I get it. Like, you know, they're going to start off with chaos. They're switching their powers and eventually like they figure out their powers and they have the big dramatic scene. Like, I get it. I know what's going to happen, but like for, for a minute there, I really, really was invested in what Marvel was doing and really caring. And like these yeah. days, like I find myself so disinterested to the point where I'm like, almost like waiting, like, is this bubble done? Right. Almost. And, and also speaking of which is still on the same uh, idea of superhero movies, but the other side, we got DC news as well. So first, uh, none of the justice league stars from the DC EU will return to reprise their roles in James Gunn's DCU. So that's just some news there, but there was some real spicy news that came out ahead of uh, Aquaman two. Or, uh, it's two, right? It is two, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's two, okay. Yeah. I was like, I haven't seen the first one, I don't even care. <laughs> Jason Momoa apparently showed up drunk on the set of Aquaman 2 dressed up as Johnny Depp in front of Amber Heard. That's crazy. That's crazy. Wild move. Like, <laughs> I don't know what he was hoping to accomplish with that. I don't know either. Like, is he boys with Depp? Is he just, like, hates Amber Heard? Yeah. I think he probably just hates Because apparently he tried to get her fired as well. Yeah. That's first thing. And also, apparently she avoided being fired from Aquaman 2 because Elon Musk, who she was dating at the time, he threatened legal action if she wasn't brought back. Yeah, I, I saw this. It's like, the whole thing just sounds so dramatic bad and messy and soap opera y and just like and it's all tied to a movie that no one cares about i know <laughs> and this is actually like uh, i'd wa- I'd, w- I'd rather watch this movie the making of <laughs> the Aquaman making of the behind oh, the scenes i'd love to watch the making of Aquaman <laughs> 2 that would be a great movie because you'd have the background with all the johnny depp stuff you have this random elon musk appearance yeah amber heard going through all her shenanigans Jason Momoa acting like a jerk. Imagine that a <laughs> Blu-ray commentary track with Jason Momoa and Amber Heard. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, even just that movie existing, like, the making of Aquaman 2 sounds so much more interesting to me 100%. than anything they're going to do in that movie. Next, I got Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling. We've all heard about their 1960s Ocean's Eleven prequel. Number one, that's still moving forward. And they're saying that... Uh, I think we're just trying to do right by the franchise. I'm excited for people to experience it when it's ready. That's coming from the producer. My thought on this mm. is that Ryan Gosling and Margot are really becoming like this really strong grouping together, right? Like I like when there's like a certain, like a duo or a group of people who make these movies together. Yeah. And then they kind of have like a run going. They feel like they're on a run right now. 100%. I mean, they're involved in the biggest movie of the year. Yeah. Number one, they are literally known as Ken and Barbie. Yeah, yeah. Right? So this this could work for a long, long time. Yeah. I mean, it's gonna be interesting to see how this parlays into an Ocean's Eleven prequel movie because on paper, it sounds like it's gonna tick all the boxes. Sounds like a W. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like I'm I'm here for like all of this. I'm here for these two because it's funny because it's, you get to kind of go through an interesting ride with that relationship mm. as well. I, the idea of Margot Robbie and all that kind of stuff. It's almost like you're going through the whole independence that you get from Barbie. Yeah. That like the, the you, you almost like if, if you're following Margot Robbie as like a character, you get the independence and like the star power from that. But then the next movie, if we get this, it's almost like we get a payoff for them as a, as a group. Yeah. And so that's just going to make people going to continue on this ride and see what projects they do next. If they do. It's also very reminiscent of like really old Hollywood star power where yeah. you kind of had the, the, the female and male lead pairing up to feature in the movie. And that's a selling point. Multiple of why, movies. Yeah. 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 Like you guys love them in Barbie. Watch them in this. Exactly. Next, 
I think this is more for you. But uh, Michael Mann says that Heat 2 is planned to be his next film. So, uh, yeah, what are your thoughts? Man, let me tell you, I love Heat. I think it's Michael Mann's best movie. It's a classic 90s movie. It's got one of the most iconic scenes in cinema history with De Niro and Pacino. Actually, it's one of those movies. Like, it's my, my father-in-law's favorite movie. Uh, I watch it at least maybe once a year for sure. I actually just watched it a couple of weeks ago. I do not care about a prequel. I really don't, man. And I, I don't care about Michael Mann, if I'm being honest. Uh, neither do I. But that's his best. That's, that's his, like, like, his resume, his catalog isn't my jam. Yeah. But that one particular movie crushed it that's absolutely killed it this is interesting and also if it was adam driver that gets me a little bit more excited because sure. I, I do want to check out what adam driver's been doing mm. but i don't know this movie does nothing for me mm, neither to me I, I, <laughs> I don't care about a prequel to heat the the first movie is like such a classic it's so iconic it's perfect the way yeah. it is yeah and to what to see adam driver do a young de niro as macaulay like impersonation i don't know man i wonder what somebody would think of like us just praising barbie and then just being like i don't want heat too um <laughs> but uh right. hey listen it's certainly got conversation going absolutely there are some people that are actually for it yeah and there's some people that are just completely against it yeah. so it's got people like really oh, up in arms right i mean if you're a heat fan like i don't know how you would feel about wanting this as a franchise right anyway yeah right? like what does that do for anybody and also what coming up to what 30 years later it yeah. just feels like oh it's a michael man like oh i've got i could do the sequel to heat yeah the movie that like you know crushed it for me 30 years ago it, it seems like it's kind of like what's happening with ridley scott and gladiator 2 where it's like well everything's kind of lukewarm right now i mm. might as well just hop on this old ip and yeah. just continue that and he's got napoleon coming out very very soon yeah 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 for sure next uh francis ford coppola he said that martin scorsese is the world's greatest living filmmaker his new film killers of the flower moon delivers on every level so uh obviously that's great news for the hype of killers of the flower moon but also how do you feel about somebody like francis ford coppola given that like obviously Martin Scorsese already in that conversation. Yeah. But from one goat to another goat, that's yeah. like, that's like as big of a rub as you can get. 100%. Like I've said this before, but him, Lucas Spielberg and Scorsese, those four kind of came up around about the same era. And to have one of your peers and one of your colleagues kind of bestow that kind of compliment on, onto you, yeah. it, it doesn't get any better than that. And like the more we start to hear about killers, from people in industry that have seen it, that have watched it. Well, we spoke to somebody, you know, today that watched it a couple of weeks ago. It's mm-hmm. just, it's only nothing but positive reviews and, and sentiment. And yeah. like that is, alone is getting me super excited about watching this film. Yeah, absolutely. And the person you're talking about is like the president of Landmark Cinemas. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll talk about that in a second. But it's just interesting to see that like, you know, from all different kinds of people getting access to this film, slowly, slowly, people are really starting to believe that not only is this a tremendous film, and an amazing piece of work from Martin Scorsese. But it's so consistently being said that this is one of Leo's best performances of his entire career, which speaking of Leo is like the utmost compliment you could possibly get. Yeah. And even if in a, in a few weeks when we watch it, we don't be like, Oh, that's not the absolute best. Even if it's in that stratosphere, that's good enough. Top 10 Leo is all timer stuff. Exactly. That, and that's a credit to his performances yeah. in his movies. Absolutely. Like the guy is just an incredible actor of his generation. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I think he is like the definitive greatest actor of our generation. I think that's like easy to say. Isn't that weird? Like we can definitively say, I'm sure people will make arguments for like, let's say like a Daniel day Lewis or something like that. But, like, the resume is just so overwhelmingly strong for Leo. Yeah. Even if you have, like, selective performances. Like, Leo, just for quality and quantity, trumps everybody. Yeah, I agree. Like, I think for 
the generation that preceded us, it was like a com- uh, conversation. Yeah. Pacino De Niro, Pacino De Niro. But DiCaprio hasn't had an equal he during his run. Peer. Yeah, yeah, he really doesn't. Also, still speaking of Scorsese, he says that the combination of Barbie and Oppenheimer was something special. He says it does offer some hope for a different kind of cinema to emerge, different from what's been happening in the last 20 years. Obviously, he's been a big critic of franchises and superhero films and that kind of stuff kind of just taking over Mm. uh, mainstream cinema. But this brings up two interesting points. Number one is kind of what we were talking about with A24 having like that opportunity to like kind of emerge as like a new voice in like major big studio films. Yeah. That could absolutely be like what he's talking about basically. But secondly, it's almost like a retrospective. I kind of want to see like, what are your thoughts on, Barbie Hammer now after the fact like how do you think the studio will be able to recreate something like that or try to replicate it even or come close you know what I always think back to when Avatar first came out right and the 3D experience of it was just like oh my god you got to watch it in 3D and it's so kind of innovative for its time and then what happened was every studio just did like a retro fix to a lot of their movies and like oh we're going to just do a 3D you know uh, screening of this we're going to charge you more money for it and even though there's like zero kind of experience from a 3d element to it that's even close to what avatar gives you right mm. it's it's yet to uh unfold how barbenheimer is gonna move marketing in the film industry moving forward like how do you work with either another movie within your own like catalog mm-hmm. or with a completely different studio because yeah. this was a very organic fan-driven piece of marketing. It wasn't like a studio yeah. executive said, oh, I know what we could do. We could just team up with this completely different type of movie from a different studio and we can just play off each other. It doesn't okay. work like that. But I think the interesting thing is you almost have to look at it and see how you could make it work. Because mm. really, like when you look at Barbenheimer, you almost look at it as two completely different films. Yeah. One that could have uh, a big IP fan based just straight up off Barbie. Mm. That's There's a whole built-in audience just from that. And then you add, you know, Margot Robbie, you add Greta Gerwig, you add Ryan Gosling, like all these different people that you start going like, okay, this is like interesting. Like I would want to see this film for like a wider audience. And then on the other side, you have Chris Nolan uh, building up hype with Oppenheimer, building up hype with uh, Cillian Murphy, uh, Robert Downey Jr., like all these amazing people in his film. But he already has this whole niche and like built in fan base as well. I think the interesting thing is like those weren't conflicting fan bases. Mm. They like... I don't see how anybody who's involved with Oppenheimer is overtly an overlapping fan of that thing that exists. 100%. In yeah. So I think that's like the lesson, like almost you have to have things that are almost complementary to each other yeah. where one film has to exist in a space that's in completely independent of the other. I saw, other. I saw something on a very smaller scale with a uh, pause, poor patrol and saw X a few weeks ago. You know what yeah. I mean? And the creator. Cause if you think about it, that's a movie that's a great case study because it's yeah. three different movies yeah. that completely exist in completely different spaces. Paw Patrol for kids, Saw for like sick fucks and like creator for like sci-fi, sci-fi heads. heads. Yeah. So you got three completely different fan bases, nobody eating up each other's space and everybody eating period. Yeah. And you saw how much of a dub that was. Those three movies by themselves don't feel like they create a lot of noise. Yeah. But all three of them together, that's a $100 million weekend. I'm just wondering, like, is this possible to be manufactured from a marketing executive's desk? Or is this only ever going to happen because of a fan-driven, viral, kind of like organic thing online? Can I tell you something? Mm. Capitalism tells us, number one, mm. it's definitely not number two. <laughs> it's not like they're waiting for something well, organic to happen. Like, well, maybe, well, maybe it's a studio like A24 that can pull this off where they have these kind of like niche art house movies and they're going to also have a big IP franchise yeah. and then internally mm-hmm. they can figure out a way to maybe, play off Maybe something like that. But I think it's just also like a cooperative thing too where it's like 
you know, the next Chris Nolan movie. Now, you know, you can release something opposite of that, but it just has to be opposite of that. Just not the same. I just think it's so few and far between. It's not something that maybe we get it once a year. Maybe like in 2024, there's going to be a a moment during the release schedule. where like, oh, now we're going to see if what happened last year with Biobenheimer repeats itself. I don't think it's something you can like force ahead of time, like years in advance, like where it's like, okay, cool. We'll do a Paw Patrol movie and you guys do a song movie. I don't think it's like that. No way. I think they'll look at their schedules now and be like, well, you have Oppenheimer and also we have Barbie, like whatever the equivalent of those are. And then just be like, well, why not just try it? Let's try it. Let's see what happens. Here's a good one to schedule. So next Christmas, so Christmas 2024 is, I believe, when we're going to get the next Avatar movie, mm-hmm. right? So maybe there's an, another movie that can jump as an opposite to an Avatar experience I don't during know. Christmas. See, I don't know. So this is the thing. This is my counter argument to like that thought is uh, if it's something like an Avatar movie, which completely swallows the entire everybody's attention yeah unfortunately that feels different marvel feels different like mm. these big tentpole movies that are meant to like completely overlap everybody and eclipse everybody yeah that doesn't feel like it's conducive to like well you know what maybe we should also release this movie the same weekend but if it's something like Oppenheimer, which isn't overtly this massive studio film that is expected to be like hundreds and hundreds of million dollars in the first opening weekend I feel like something that's like more middle and like less demanding of like everyone's attention where you can actually kind of compete with each other Mm. and make it kind of fun. That works. 50 Cent versus Kanye works Mm. because they're not competing for fan bases. I just feel like it's not a case of them going head to head on opening weekend though. It's a case of where, okay, if you're going to watch Barbie this weekend, you know about the Barbenheimer marketing campaign. So maybe you watch Oppenheimer second or third week, which kind of like looks, look at the run. They've had a consistent run throughout the entire summer. Absolutely. And oppositely, if you watch Oppenheimer first weekend, maybe you kind of heard about Barbie because of the marketing campaign. And that's where I think two movies could potentially work together on a run as opposed to opening weekend. What I'm saying is like, I don't think it works. And this is all speculation. We're just bro sciencing the fuck out of this. (laughs) But I don't think it works if you put out a film that's meant to be too big. Like Mm. Avatar, they're always shooting for this is going to be the biggest movie of the year, number one. And number two, we got to make a billion dollars. Yeah. Right? Like I bet for like Barbie, they didn't think of their wildest dreams. Like hopefully, like I bet they hoped it would make a billion dollars. I've heard, I remember seeing Margot Robbie saying like, this is going to make a billion dollars. Yeah. But I'm sure they didn't expect it to actually do that. You know what's interesting? Let's see if we even have this conversation ever again. Does this happen again? Yes, absolutely. Let's does. find out. I guarantee. Like, what do you mean? They're not. They're of course they're going to try. It works so well. This again. Year. Who's going to try? The studio, a marketing executive. Like this yes. is a viral organic thing online. Yeah, they're going to try. To and so now it. corporate, like capitalistic America, is going to try and shove it down your throat. Absolutely. How's that going to resonate with an audience? We're going to find out. Yeah, and it's going to work. It's going to. It's going to work sometimes. It's Why? not going to work all the time, but it's going to work sometimes. I can't wait for the next time for this to happen for us to kind of actually have a side by side comparison in terms yeah. of how did it work. But, the I mean, second like, time around. the thing is, like, it's not going to happen. It's not going to work every single time. It's not going to happen every single time. If it doesn't work a second or third time, did they try a fourth, fifth time? Absolutely. How can you say that so confidently though? Because they did it and it worked. We had one moment. Like it happened one time. But you just saw from like a small, we just said the smaller case study of like Paw Patrol, etc. That was like one tweet that I saw that I was referencing. It was like a big campaign But like even for example, like for for our social media post, you, you put up all three because it's like three were competing. Regularly, yeah. we don't even do that. Yeah, true. And only because they were so different. I was like, this is an interesting case study I mean. just to see who's performing what over the, that's after the fact. Yeah, I'm telling you organically, cause just because if you think about it, like the, the stuff that we're talking about as being like, well, this doesn't seem like it works. Like Avatar doesn't feel like it works. Superhero movies don't feel like it works. 
those things are kind of fizzling out anyways. I just feel like even like I, I wasn't as keen on Barbie as I was Oppenheimer because it was Nolan. That felt like a big event of the summer for me. Yeah. Just like a Cameron movie would or just like a Scorsese movie would. Let's say, for example, okay, so let's say Avatar 2 versus ba- uh, Babylon, right? Yeah. Like those came out around the same time. Yeah. And completely swallowed Babylon. Sure. Right? But let's say it was like this year where like a gladiator, which isn't going to make as much, or sorry, uh, Napoleon, a Napoleon, which isn't going to make as much money, mm. which isn't going to be as big, which isn't going to have that same marketed budget behind it. If that were to face something like Babylon, I would be like, okay, cool. These two can coexist. They completely are not fighting for the same audience. They're fighting for different audiences. They're fighting for different kinds of uh, sensibilities. I could see that being like, and especially a movie like Babylon, that would have worked way better for both of them. Doesn't that feel more complimentary? I mean, they're both period movies, but I get what you're trying to say. But there. you see what I mean? Like, yeah. if, if this if this thought makes sense, then that means whatever they figure out is going to be something that makes a lot more sense. I, don't I personally, I'm super skeptical about seeing another Barbenheimer marketing activation happen again. And if it does, if it's forced down by studios, I just don't know how that's going to resonate with fans. Listen, it's going to happen. It's going to feel organic, but it's not going to be organic. I don't know, that's man. what's going to happen. I don't know. Jury's uh, out. They get us, man. They get us. We'll see. We'll see. We'll find out. Uh, last thing, actually, is uh, last thing I was going to also just mention about Barbie Hammer or uh, about Barbie. Scott Dickerson, he says that Barbie should probably win Best Picture. The writing is so clever, so smart and subversive. The acting is amazing and it's so entertaining. It's artful in its visuals. The style of it is just an awesome film. I just love that people are in this space. Yeah. Recognize it, it absolutely should get that kind of praise and accolade. And it should absolutely be in the running for Best Picture when the nominations come out for the it's Oscars. It's funny because now that we're a few weeks apart, yeah. we're a few weeks uh, or a few months away from Barbenheimer, I feel almost more like strengthened in my resolve to be like, no, no, no. I, I would rather ride with Barbie than I would with uh, Oppenheimer, like especially in that forward season. Yeah. Just because it feels like as much as I really believe that Oppenheimer would win like all the technical awards. Yeah. I'm almost like I've lost the idea of like, well, now it feels like it's going to win best picture. It doesn't feel like that anymore. For, for me, because I've seen a few more movies since Barbenheimer, like my, my general idea of what I consider to be my favorite movie of the year is, is a bit more kind of like uh, vast. Yeah. And um, it's going to be mad interesting to see what the actual nominations are. If we have to go back and watch any movies that we missed or if we're like, oh, we've seen all these movies. Now, what do you think? Let me, let me ask you this. Think about like when you're thinking of the idea of Barbie, Oppenheimer, all these other movies that you've seen. You've seen Past Lives. You've seen all, all, these, amazing, yeah, all these amazing movies at TIFF. Yeah. I could see people like holdovers taking away a few votes from Oppenheimer. Yeah. Past lives taking a few votes from Oppenheimer. All these movies taking a few votes from Oppenheimer. But the people that are voting for Barbie, they're voting for Barbie. Yeah. It's the biggest movie of the year. It had the biggest impact. I really think, I'm not saying it's going to win. Yeah. But I think, I think it's going to end up having a stronger case. Nomination alone will be incredible validation. And then if it does get nominated, which I hope it does, it will almost be our article. Cool. Now we're in a marketing campaign. Now we know it's nominated. Now let's see what's going I think it's almost a shoe in that's going to get nominated for. I think it's going to be in that conversation. It'll definitely get nominated only because the Oscars have expanded their category for best picture to 10 movies. So yeah. that alone should definitely shoe and get. I it. think I, even like if it wasn't, like I still think it's just the way it was presented, the film that it is, yeah. and uh, the way it was kind of uh, accepted yeah. is, is just such a strong statement in film. And like. Mm. It ended up being the biggest film, uh, biggest, yeah, the biggest film of the year. But more than that, it's the biggest film of the year. But also, nobody is saying like, "Oh, that movie's okay" or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like people recognize how good of a movie universally it is. positive sentiment. Huge, yeah. 
But that's everything for news this week. Before we move into our reviews, I kind of want to just talk about where we were. Pretty unique experience for us this week where we were invited to a press day at the brand new unveiling of a landmark cinema in Waterloo. It was great to be invited to a press event to our favorite local cinema franchise, Landmark Cinemas as a Canadian franchise. And they were kind of just showcasing the new screens and uh, IMAX laser, which was very, very interesting. And I found the overall experience to be very, very positive because I I want to see cinemas push it continuously mm-hmm. and to see the the local cinema that we appreciate reinvest like this to this scale. I actually love it. Yeah, it's interesting because we I'm sure everybody has a cinema that's like a normal theater that has like normal seats that has just like basically your standard theater experience. Mm. And it feels like we've already just as fans been like advocating for the idea of like what Landmark's been doing because really what I love about film is the biggest thing is the communal experience that you get when you go to a movie theater, you get to watch it with a bunch of film fans and like almost have this shared cathartic moment when the film's amazing. Yeah. And on top of that, you add like really like the most comfortable seats you could possibly have more comfortable than being at home. Yeah. So the idea of like, okay, cool. I just like to be cozy on my couch. Like, no, but this is basically like that environment. That's a check that they have. And now you see landmark kind of leveling it up adding IMAX to their their uh offering yeah and yeah. on top of that they're also pushing it with uh with laser and making it even more immersive uh, more immersive more vivid like a deeper viewing experience in every single way and on top of that the sound's amazing and uh yeah it's just I feel like it, like you said like we we already are big fans of this franchise yeah. it's it's even better that they are continuously pushing it to make it the, so that it's an even better viewing experience for people like us. And they have to, because let's be honest, it's like a lot of folks now have incredible TVs and surround sound systems. And these movies drop, you know, on streaming services, not too after their theatrical run. So cinemas in general have to give you more of a reason these days to kind of get you to pay for a ticket to get you off your couch and get you into the cinema. And I think landmark right now gives you so many good reasons. And like you said, it's like, the comfort of these recliner couches with seat warmers, a cubby for your jacket. (laughs) Like it's just, you feel so cozy. And I've said this to people since I arrived in Toronto in 2018, after my very first time going to a landmark cinema, after you go to a landmark cinema, you can't go back to a regular theater again. Yeah. I'm sorry, but you can't. It's just like the overall experience is too damn good. Mm-hmm. You, you will be converted once you go. Yeah. And, and I love it because it's the same thing that we were talking about before. Like the idea of like, let's say a 24 pushing like other big studios to mm. do better. Yeah. That's what we hope to see from like our uh, cinema franchises as well. Like, you know, if, if you see this theater, a landmark is pushing it, making better, making it more comfortable, making the visual so much better. I've been watching the same IMAX screen, Cineplex, same seats. They've never renovated anything. It just, I'm just glad there's other people that are kind of pushing it a little bit better. Absolutely. Better direction. Yeah. But yeah, let's get into our reviews for this week. First one, why don't I just knock off Saw? Because I kind of want to talk about it a little bit as well. Like, are you a Saw fan? So I remember watching the first like handful of Saw movies. Then I think I missed a couple. Then I randomly watched one. But from my perspective, the outside looking in, and I haven't seen Saw X, the general sentiment I've seen online about this movie is that it's one of the best in the franchise since perhaps the first one is that right yeah okay but do you like saw in general like is that genre for you i'm not gonna go out of my way to watch it it's not my jam yeah it's really not my vibe like yeah. saw in general is just not my forte like at the end of the day i think like gory stuff has its place mm. right like 
Saw in general feels like it's kind of gratuitous for gratuity's sake. Yeah. It's almost like it's become a space where you don't even have to think of a story anymore. Instead, you just have to like recall things that make you feel uncomfortable and then just amplify it. Yeah. Amplify that. Like, uh, (laughs) like in this movie, it's like, well, like, uh, vacuums are like minorly unsettling sometimes for like dogs. And it's like, like some weirdo would just be like, well, why don't we just make it even more unsettling? And like the vacuums like sucked out your eyeballs and they're like, yeah, let's make that into a movie. It's, I don't even know what the purpose of these movies are anymore. And this one in particular, it's really interesting because horror obviously is very visceral, mm. right? Like we're trying to have this experience where it's like, scare me, like genuinely scare me. And this movie is almost meant to make you wince. And uh, I just didn't think that this movie was like very, it just didn't give me a strong visceral feeling. I was more impacted by like that scene in Talk to Me where um, the brother gets just his, his head bashed in, right? Like that felt so visceral and I felt feelings from that. This movie didn't do anything for me. Everything mm-hmm. felt, even though we're like, you know, watching people like cut up their arms and cut off their legs and this and that. Yeah, that's cool. But like, I'm not feeling anything from any of this. Yeah, I wonder, I mean, like obviously this is the 10th movie in the franchise, Right, so it is obviously a very commercially successful franchise. Yeah. And I wonder if the Saw fan base, that's all they're there for. It's like, if you're in the creative room figuring out the next Saw movie, it's like, what kind of scenario and gruesome situation can we kind of conjure up and just figure out the plot later? <laughs> so the silly thing is like this one, they actually did try to give it a plot. Like, okay, So okay. in this movie, I'll give you a quick little rundown, but... Uh, are you going to watch? I bet you're not I'm not going to watch this so, movie. <laughs> I'll give you a Spoil it away. <laughs> yeah. So basically in Saw 10, this team like fakes a surgery uh, for the main character. And they're basically acting like they're going to remove this cancer from this experimental surgery and treatment for this kind of stuff. And it turns out they're not. Right. And he goes back to get his vengeance and does all this weird stuff on them and acts like he's God. And it's basically like if Batman was like an asshole mm. and like, uh, it doesn't do like anything really cool. It's 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 like weird. It's like heel versus heel. It's like watching a bad person do bad things to bad people. And it's like I don't care. Who am I supposed to be empathetic towards? Care about? And like none of this matters to me at right, all. Right. But yeah, basically, I get that there is a fan base for this. I get that a lot of people think this is like the best of the entry of the franchise. I will tell you, I think this movie is dumb. <laughs> it is. It really is. Especially if you break it down and you actually try to get like a little methodical with it and like actually think like, well, does this work? Like none of it works. It doesn't right. make any sense. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's almost like um, people saying this is like the best Saw movie is like being like in a group of jerks. Like this is the nicest person. Like who cares? You're still a jerk. You know what I mean? Like for me, I ended up scoring it uh 1.5 uh, in our rating score of zero to zero to five. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I just thought it didn't, it didn't do what I had hoped for, like as far as like a horror movie, a gory movie, like pretty much anything, like even story wise, like it just didn't make any sense to me. So question, you went to watch this movie with a bunch of our friends. A bunch of our friends. Like what was the general sentiment from the group? A lot of other people liked it. Okay. Yeah, you. for right. sure. Okay. I am totally speaking purely from my experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of other people liked it. I think a lot of other people probably thought it was gory and did think like, oh shit, like these kills are great. Mm. But for me, it's like, I just don't think... They number one delivered on the thing that I thought like the like as a baseline they should, which is like interesting deaths. Like they had one interesting death mm. for me. That that's the entire movie. Yeah, one death for the entire movie that was interesting. The rest is like very underwhelming. Right, and then uh, <laughs> that sounds like sadistic, but like, <laughs> but at the same time, it's just like it didn't deliver on the death part. And yeah. then like you create this story that's like even more drawn out, very boring does not make me care about anybody. Yeah. Like, trust me, 
the main character isn't a new main character. It's the dude from the original Saw. Right. They're trying to make Jigsaw, him, right? Yeah, they're trying to make him sympathetic. Right. And like, it's so stupid. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> but yeah, that's Saw 1.5. Ah. Uh, I would not go for anything beyond I was actually excited for you to watch it because I thought this would be not positive. Uh, a good no, experience Not positive. Ah, I'm sorry to hear that, man. <laughs> I was actually like, oh man, we should have watched The Exorcist. I, I <laughs> Yo, honestly, okay, here's another thing. I would rather watch spooky over gory any day of the week. Mm. Even if it's a bad spooky movie, I will at least have some sense of fear, hopefully. With gory, if it doesn't deliver, it's just boring. Got you. But yeah, what about for yourself? So my kind of mini review this week is a film called Humanist Vampire Seeking Consenting Suicidal Person. Let me just say that again. The title of this movie is Humanist Vampire Seeking Consenting Suicidal Person. Sorry, I didn't catch that. <laughs> I'm not saying it at the time. Um, it's a movie that was kind of on our schedule for the Toronto International Film Festival this year. And I think it was immediately, we both looked at it like, oh, that's a movie that's just going to get us in the door because of the title. I love the title. It's really like amazing yeah <laughs> that's like a snakes on a plane but like way smarter yeah 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 and so unfortunately i know you never got a chance to squeeze it into your schedule mm-hmm. i ended up watching it in my final few days and it's it's a movie by this canadian filmmaker uh ariane louis sees who's making her feature film uh debut and i actually think it's a real statement on kind of like local canadian cinema especially kind of like from quebec because this is like a, a coming of age vampire horror comedy and it's got tons of heart like let me tell you the synopsis of this uh, this movie and i'm not going to try and give any plots away or any plot points because i do actually want you to check this out at some point right but it's about this young vampire named sasha and she's got a problem she's basically too sensitive to kill anyone so what she resorts to doing is drinking these packets of blood from a local blood bank but what her parents try and do is cut her off those blood bank supplies because they actually want her to make a kill so what she does is she meets someone like at a local high school called paul who is suicidal and he has these suicidal tendencies and he finds out that she's a vampire he's like you can kill me it's all good you can kill me so sasha and paul end up spending their final night this is great fulfilling all of his final wishes because he's getting bullied at school and all this kind of stuff i'm already sold right and so before like he agrees to give up his life you know he's like let's just do all these final things on my bucket list before i have to you know give up my life for you and that's what the movie is it follows them on this kind of like this one night right and you know look i will say this it does have some familiar beats that you've seen in other coming of age movies uh, but it also at times feels fresh and modern Um, ultimately i would say it's heartwarming it's charming and fun to watch Uh, and also for me watching a french language film with a cast of total unknowns i just thought the fact that this was a a vampire horror comedy coming of age movie it just it just worked it really really worked well for me mm-hmm. um so it's a 90 minute french language film i checked and it's out at the moment but i couldn't see any listings in any of my local cinemas so it might be one of those films that you can have to seek out and try and find if you can or maybe you'll check it out on a streaming platform later on but uh, yeah i had a good time watching it if i had to give it a rating on, on our star system i'd say like 3.5 nice. uh, so it's a pretty solid watch and yeah i had a good time watching it man awesome awesome but yeah that sets us up for our review where we both watched a film which was uh one of the selections for can this year and also obviously the toronto international film festival we're talking anatomy of the fall i need you to be precise tell me everything about the day died okay i didn't realize it was so high yeah i went upstairs to my bedroom 
That's when I heard Daniel scream. Mama! That's it. The autopsy report is inconclusive. I think he fell. An accidental fall is going to be hard to defend. Nobody's going to believe that. All right, so just to set this up, this movie, uh, first off, the title's amazing. Anatomy of a Fall is like the perfect title for this movie. It's such an interesting analysis into the psychology of like an incident. Mm. That I think is great, number one. And then number two, I didn't really know what to expect walking in this movie because obviously the title is what it is. Yeah. And I didn't, I assumed it was going to be something to do with a fall, right? But uh, in my head, I was also thinking, okay, well, is this going to be like a death? Like, how are we dealing with this? Is it going to be like, it, it's just like kind of get you there right away. Within yeah. like the first couple of minutes, somebody dies and we're following that the entire movie through. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, this re- it's a really interesting movie. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, to give some more context, it won the Palm Door at the Issues Cannes Film Festival. And I have to say, I uh, had a really good time Me too. watching this movie. Yeah, I feel like this movie, like if I were to sum it up into a sentence, it would just be perception is reality, mm. right? And it's this whole movie just exploring this idea of uh, of a trial, of, of seeing if somebody's death was accidental or uh, on purpose. Yeah. And yeah, it was just, it's just really... You go through a lot of beats and we're going to get into that. Even when you kind of get to the re- sort of resolution of the movie in terms of what happens during this trial, you're still left asking questions of yourself yeah. and you're still left. It's a little open ended in terms yeah. of how you are treating everything that you've been given in terms of evidence yeah. of these characters and these scenes and these relationships and actually what happens. So I want to get into all of that in just a second. Yeah. But the first thing I wanted to get into, I think it's like the most important part of the film is uh, why did they use PIMP as the <laughs> yeah. song? That was the weirdest thing uh, <laughs> of the entire movie. I, it made me like, okay, so first off, I was li- like, the movie starts. <laughs> yeah. She's having this like interview and PIMP shows up. I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. I'm like, is this a sample? Like what's going on? And number two, okay, okay before we even get to the movie part, yeah. I hate this song. Yeah. I think PIMP is one of the worst rap songs to ever exist yeah. in rap period yeah i don't know if you share that same sentiment i agree with you i hate this song i if i hear it in a club if we go to a party somebody plays it i go you're a loser (laughs) whoever plays the song is the biggest loser because it's like anybody who identifies with pimp you're the biggest dork of all time yeah because there's never like imagine if you were somebody who thought they were like a big machismo motherfucker walking around and you're listening to i don't know what you heard about me what are you talking about this is not nobody identifies with the song you are a dork but secondly imagine you die <laughs> while a steel drum version of pimp is playing like that's the worst way to die of all time oh my god you know what now that you put it like that is actually horrendous it actually like i couldn't take the death seriously for a second the right. first like 10 minutes of the film yeah i was like what just happened PIMP is still playing and we're looking at this dead body like somebody turn off PIMP please the funny thing is is like it doesn't just play once you hear it a few times and and it's like a annoying at your head okay and not like spoiler wise imagine choosing PIMP to be the last song of your life (laughs) like I'm in my head I was like you know what this guy has to be innocent she must be guilty no one would choose PIMP (laughs) to be the last song of their life (laughs) um so that's number one. I just love that we have an entire segment dedicated to PIMP. Purely, I love it. It's the worst song of all time. This is great. Second, 
the way okay so now to get back into like more the actual (laughs) but like seriously like the the, i think one thing that's amazing in this movie is you watch this person die or you 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 find this person dead and then you kind of go through this movie where there's a trial and they're like well, did this person die of suicide? Did they die of uh, something actually happening? Was well, it a murder? Like, was it a murder? Yeah. Was it incidental? What happened? Right. And the way they make you doubt is amazing. Yes, so good. Right? Yeah. It, at first, like, it doesn't feel like she did it. She's such an innocent person. Like, it, it feels, like, ridiculous to, like, incriminate her right yeah, away. Yeah. Like, the way we kind of start off with the film, I'm like, well, yeah, like, this... I didn't actually even think this was the whole movie. Because the way they made it seem, it almost felt like it was, like oh yeah, it could be something, but like whatever. Right. And then like slowly they kind of like introduce this idea that like, no, 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 we're going to trial. Like this is a serious thing. Like yeah. this person could actually be, they're, the they're, they're going to be tried for murder. Yeah, yeah. And or manslaughter at the very least or whatever the equivalent is of France. Or it's, it's just so interesting because they go through so many character points and so many interesting plot points that resonate in really interesting ways. Like one thing that they say is like, is when they're talking about people. Mm. Like they're talking about like, it's not reality. It is a part maybe. You have an extreme moment. It's not reality. It's our voices, but it's not who we are. Like this idea that like this whole time they're presenting evidence of like who this person is, showing voice recordings and this and that. But like that's just people capturing moments. Yeah. And it's not necessarily a reflection of somebody and their actions of who they are and what they actually do. But it's capturing people at their worst. Yeah. And we're trying them for that. So me and my wife, we watch a lot of uh, crime documentaries on Netflix. It's like when I, like every time there's a new one that's kind of like, you know, going viral or in the top 10 list. We're like, oh, let's watch it. So we watch a lot. I have watched a lot of these over the last decade. Mm-hmm. And this feels like almost the perfect movie version of that. Yeah. Because you're right. It makes you doubt this twist and turns. Halfway through the movie, I didn't know what to believe. Yeah. Like, I was like. Did she do it? Like, right. I'm doubting. Like at the start, I'm genuinely thinking no freaking way is she the person that did this. Like this must have been something else that happened. But halfway through, they convinced me. Yeah. Like, I was like, I don't know. Like the build up to the point where the trial starts is fantastic. But when the trial starts, yeah. it just takes you to a whole new level. A whole different level. Like the way they shoot the trial and the evidence being revealed, more information coming out along the way. It's it's magnificent. It completely changes the circumstances of the film. It's a roller coaster. There's so yeah. many different points of the film where you're just like, what? What do yeah. we believe right now? Like, it's, it's especially it's during the trial portion of the movie where I found it to be the most gripping, and it's because of Sandra Huller who plays Sandra, her performance, beca- yeah. and and it's because her character Sandra. She is trying so hard to answer questions and to answer it in the best way she possibly can. She'd prefer to do it in English. Yeah. English, But because she's forced to do it in French, it's like you feel for her and you try to, you put yourself in that situation where she's not completely fluent in this foreign language mm-hmm. and she's, she's like on the trial for her life right now. Yeah. And it causes some incredibly dramatic, powerful scenes between her and like the, the judge of the other side. The uh, prosecutor? Prosecutor, there yeah, you go. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, shout out to him, Antoine Renards, because that guy is incredible. Mm. The way he's able to, number one, because he's the, the, the opposite side of this. As much as you feel this compulsion of like, she's innocent, he is such a convincing prosecutor that he makes you doubt yeah. Along the way, every single time you think, well, no, 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 she's innocent. He makes you doubt it every single step. It's yeah. incredible the way they do that. And it's great because at times during the trial, you're actually getting brand new evidence mm-hmm. that you haven't seen before, which is starting to kind of like you're peeling the onion, you're getting yeah. more layers. But then as the film goes on, you're actually getting some flashback scenes as yeah. well. And you also like just even along the way, you just like learn more about the characters and 
yeah. you start caring about them more. Even just speaking of Sandra, Sandra Voider, uh, the main character, like the way even she talks about her son and her relationship with her son. Like I, one thing I really love about how she talks about him is the way she talks about him being handicapped. Mm. And uh, she says how like the label of being handicapped can be very limiting. And they did their best to make sure that he, their son didn't identify with the label of being handicapped because they wanted to give him the best version of his life. Yeah. Right. Because they didn't want him to think he was limited in any capacity. So they tried to make him really believe in that way. And I think that's like really beautiful. Yeah. I've never seen it phrased in that way in a movie. I think that's really tremendous. Yeah. Outside of Sandra Hula, who plays Sandra, her son, who's played, uh, his name's character's name is Daniel, played by Milo Machado Grania. He did a great job. Man. Great job. And to the point where like, you're feeling so sympathetic for him. Mm. And then even in the end, one scene that really messed me up is when uh, he goes to poison, basically poison his dog. Yeah. Right. And you see this dog, like number one, any kind of dog violence, like just, fucks me up right it, automatically yeah in a movie just because it is really like i have a dog <laughs> yeah i <laughs> know like, i have a dog number one but yeah, also yeah. like number two like do- well, on a human level man yeah it's just like- on a human level you see that dog like completely like i don't know how they shot that by the way that if that dog is an actor like i don't know it's amazing i was so glad that you brought that up because yeah. i had a note on this yeah. i didn't know how the hell that was done because that looked so damn realistic yeah, man. and it really hurt me to my core it's basically like, this dog is like strong. convulsing and throwing, having to throw up on cue like it's a wild scene man yeah absolutely um i kind of want to get into uh as far as like our categories go because i, I kind of want to hit other points along yeah, the way yeah, but sure. what, what about as far as best character i feel like there's two big standouts mm. obviously sandra the main character but also the prosecutor uh antoine renards yes who'd you end up going with i ended up going with sandra huller yeah. i i thought she was just fantastic in the lead role and some of the scenes where her character like i said is forced to communicate in french uh, are really tough to watch um as she would obviously like to pref- you know prefer to answer in english those are for me some of the strongest moments of the movie and it's only because of the prosecutor yeah right who's going so hard at her Super. and really making a squeal and you can feel her sweat and be so anxious in that moment yeah. um but to perform at that level like i'm not familiar with sandra huller's work prior to this movie yeah. at all i haven't seen her in anything mm-hmm. And I feel so strongly about her performance that I don't, wouldn't be surprised if she picks up nominations during award season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I think you're completely correct. And uh, not only that, but it's just interesting to see, like, because now when you watch that movie in retrospect and you see the verdict and how it happened, when you're watching it initially and you see how choked up she gets, you almost are more sympathetic towards her because it's like, well, she's just not trying to, like, say something stupid and incriminate yeah, herself, right. even though she obviously, she must not have done this. Yeah. Right? What about as far as best scene goes? Honestly, you can pick any of the courtroom scenes, like I mentioned. Like I said, you can just feel the frustration mm-hmm. from her character when she's kind of, like, prodded and probed about answering specifically in French. And even when she's, like, asking, hey, can I answer this in English? I just, I don't know, man. It just felt, um, like, I've been to France and I've been to a lot of countries where I don't speak the common tongue and the common language. And I could just only imagine, imagine you are tried mm-hmm. in a foreign country and your life is on the line. Yeah. It's just, it makes, those courtroom scenes are my favorite scenes. So pick any of those. Yeah. Um, for me, it's, uh, it starts off in the courtroom where they have new evidence to present. It's the scene where you basically, they just start playing a tape recording and it's the husband and the wife fighting. Yeah. That is the best scene. For me, number one, I have so many thoughts on this, by the way, points. All right. So first thing is they're fighting basically about him wanting to kind of have more autonomy, trying to like get his life back and be able to write more after feeling guilt for what happened to his son. He first off mentions this idea where he's like, things are out of balance, 
right? And then she says this line, which completely caught me off. And it was really, really interesting. She says, I don't believe in the notion of reciprocity in a couple. What do you think about that? I don't even know what reciprocity means. Basically, she's saying, so he's saying things are out of balance. Like, I am doing more in this relationship, in our family, than you are. Right. She is, you know. She's not putting her weight? Yeah, he's writing, he's doing all, or sorry, she's writing, she's producing all these books. She has to take time to figure out what she's going to write next, all this kind of stuff. He has to do all these renovations. He's trying to write himself. He's a teacher. He's taking care of their son. He feels a sense of imbalance. Mm -hmm. But she's saying, I don't like this idea that because you do one thing, I'm supposed to do one thing. There shouldn't be a balance that equals out. We're a couple. So there shouldn't be like math that makes sense. I completely agree with her character on this. Yeah. Do do you not? No, no, I do. I'm actually curious to see what your thoughts are. No, no. At the end of the day, I'm not a married person. So I, I almost feel like less... Like, I think that's like a really interesting thought. Yeah. But I don't feel like I have the best insight into it. So it's funny because like me and my wife, we don't even like, we've never had this conversation about I'm going to do this specific one thing and you're going to do this specific one thing. It's Mm -hmm. just like, I don't know, man, maybe I'm lucky or I'm unique, but we're very harmonious in terms of just getting stuff done and it doesn't really matter who's kind of doing it. We just kind of like feel like we're both sharing our load in this relationship, making sure we're both happy. Yeah. We both live together happily and we both... when you look at this couple, what what kind of thoughts go to your head in the idea of like him saying like things are out of balance? Like I want, like I want to be able to do other things. You should be taking some of this load. It just seems like it's an unhealthy relationship to me, man. And when one party of the couple or the relationship is feeling that way, it feels like there's other communication breakdown or the relationship isn't as strong because one person clearly wants something that the other person isn't even aware of when you kind of look at this couple though like what like let's say for example you had to offer advice like mm. what are you thinking is their solution before all of this i mean you can go through the rudimentary list of things it's like maybe get couples therapy or have a conversation or maybe i don't know if they're not married just take a break from each other mm. have some separation yeah go find who you are find yourself figure out what you want as an individual first and then come back to the table as a relationship as a couple for me like this scene is like so interesting number one obviously because of the content of it but the idea that you like owe your spells like what do you owe your spells right in a relationship like the idea of balance like this is what people struggle with every single day think about how nuanced that scene is just off that one line alone like that writing is so tremendously real yeah and sharp yeah that is amazing to me and that's where this film has so many great layers to it because on the surface it's all right cool it's a trial about someone that may or may have not committed a murder but as the movie plays out it's making so many statements about relationships yeah and about being an immigrant yeah and about a, a whole plethora of other things and that's where you get so much more out of this and movie that's not even the end of the scene they keep fleshing it out you impose your ways of speaking of fucking like he, yeah. the, that's the words they say like she she doesn't like they don't have sex anymore yeah she cheated on him and then he says something really interesting he says you impose your solutions which I think is such an interesting thought because it's the same idea. Like it's a sense of like, here's the solution. This is how it has to be done. This is how you should be doing it. He's feeling this sense of like no control, no autonomy. And he feels like she's the one that's just get like getting him to kind of just do whatever. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if like, like what's actually happening at the end of the day, he feels this way so strongly in this place. And it, uh, he also, she also says this really interesting thing. She says, you're incapable of facing your ambitions and you resent me for it. But I'm not the one who put you where you are. I have nothing to do with it. Yeah. Which is crazy because it takes all like 
from an accountability perspective as a human being, yeah. I get that. Yeah. But from the accountability perspective of being in a relationship, yeah. that seems a little... That's selfish. a bit harsh. Seems a bit like You're meant to be caring and like uh, sympathetic to your partner's like, you know, personal life, professional life situation, uh, ambitious situation, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So that's a bit of a dagger right there, to be honest with you. She, she almost like finishes it off with you're petrified by your own standards. Like, okay, think about all those things I just mentioned. This yeah. is one scene. I genuinely think this is one of, if not the best scene I've seen this entire year. That's great. Period. And to jump off what you just said there, you know, you have essentially kind of acclaimed the the script and the dialogue of this incredible film. And it, credit has to go to Justine Tread. Like I mentioned earlier on how Sandra Huller is fantastic as the lead, as Sandra. But the other major component is the filmmaker. Justine Tread. She, I looked at her resume and I'm not familiar with her work, but she has written and directed all of her movies. Mm-hmm. So you can see when every time a filmmaker both has written and then directed it, it's like, okay, cool. They've got like a personal signature and a personal statement and they are bringing a lot of kind of like, um, I guess, life experience to the table here. And uh, I have to agree, man, that was an incredible scene, but the movie is littered, littered. with a very powerful scene. Even, uh, and I hate to keep going on about like the courtroom scenes, but it is a large chunk of the movie. Yeah. Even the way the camera camera pivots from like where Sandra is positioned to where the prosecution is positioned. I just thought the way it didn't play out. Like, I don't feel like I've seen a courtroom drama play out in a film like I saw it in Anatomy Before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And well, that's a credit to them. I, I completely agree. Um, what about as far as star ratings goes? Zero being the worst, five being the best. Where do you end up with this? I gave it a 4.25. Okay. Um, really enjoyed it. Highly recommend it. I, I felt like, man... I just felt like it was a a great movie that slapped me. I could maybe just say at times the pacing wasn't there and I felt like perhaps it dragged just a little bit towards the end for me. But overall, very, very positive sentiment and review from me, man. I feel like I feel similar, but a little different because okay. for me, the first half of the movie is good. Right. But the second half of the movie is amazing. Mm-hmm. Like once they hit the courts. Yep. It's off to the races. Yeah. And it's just so interesting. And like, I, I just didn't want to stop. But for me, I actually scored a pretty similar. I scored a 4.5. It builds and it builds in the way they presented information and revealed new truths and new context is obviously like tremendous. But it makes you kind of question everything and wonder if she did it. And to come to a resolution that he did commit suicide, it makes the movie, it makes the whole story even more tragic. Like the family is broken. The kid lost someone the woman lost someone and she still had to go through this. Like they had to go through all this stuff just to prove their innocence. It just makes the death in itself even more complicated. Yeah. And you don't get the resolution that death gives you. Yeah. You don't get the, the grieving situation. Like there's no grieving in this movie. You're not allowed to grieve because unfortunately you have to deal with the situation right in front of you. So question by the end of the movie, did you feel as though she committed the murder or not? I, I thought she didn't. Okay. Yeah, I, I kind of walked away with that. Uh, they, like, I, I believe them. Like, mm-hmm. I believe that this is all correct because like, right. it didn't. I don't get the sense that like I do get the sense that she's uh, a jerk sometimes. Mm. But it's kind of like what what it was before. Like mm. these are moments. Yeah. This isn't unfortunately like people act emotionally and they it's get the full really, picture. Yeah, it's the segments. Is, it's segments. Yeah. And it really, it's I can get like the idea of being like, well, she was really mean to him. Yeah. But like. We don't get the full picture. We don't get her recordings of him being like a jerk to her. Right. Maybe like they've had a different kind of life, you know, like we don't know what's been going on along the way. And unfortunately you only get moments, but those moments that we do get, they make you question whether 
she's a good person or a bad person. At the end Isn't of the it day. just a great magnifying glass in terms of how, in general, court systems work like that? And when you go to trial, when your life is on the line, your your character is on the line, how it's been built up by the other side. It's like what I said before: perception is reality. Yeah. At the end of the day, that's really what this is. This it's whatever is the truth is going to be whatever you convince us. Also, this is the second year in a row that we've been lucky enough to watch the Palm Door winner at Cannes. Last year, we watched yeah. Triangle of Sadness. This year, we've been able to watch Anatomy of a Fall. Isn't that great? I just, just want to put it, put it out there. How like two years back to back, <laughs> easy like, flex. Yeah, only because these aren't movies that like Triangle of Sadness. We didn't watch at our local theater. Yeah, it wasn't available. Yeah, we yeah. watched it at TIFF. Yeah, right. This year's movie, we almost watched at TIFF, and we just got lucky that we got sent a screener to watch at home. But this is why, you know, yes, the big blockbuster of the weekend is getting all the marketing PR campaign behind it. It's going to be available, but sometimes if you can just go out of your way to see if there's a showing of some of these kind of like movies that do well at festivals and get good word of mouth, sometimes it could be some of your best cinema experiences of the year. Absolutely, and not only that, but like this is what I hope people kind of take away for like this is like kind of what i'm like always trying to low-key push a little bit is mm-hmm. like you know like as much as like a big franchise or big studio movie is like fun they are fun they yeah. are great they have so much value when done well but at the end of the day like there is something very enriching about experiences like this mm-hmm. movies like do like you know it doesn't necessarily have to win the palm door but like yeah. we know the selection process and the way it comes out it seems to be pretty consistent these movies are pretty incredible and like looking at Triangle Sadness, looking at a movie like this, I, I walk away thinking I am, I'm enriched yeah. by having this experience and being able to watch this and being able to kind of have my own takeaways because at the end of the day, it is genuine art that makes me feel something. And that's more important than whatever visuals somebody can create on a computer. Yeah, I actually was just about to uh, say a very similar thing. I feel like in the last couple of weeks, you know, this week's, you know, podcast, I've recommended uh, hu- you know, a human vamp. I need to actually go up and see how... No, don't worry about it. No, no, no. I'm cutting that entire segment. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> like this week, I recommended, or I've reviewed rather, you know, Humanist Vampire Seeking Consenting Suicidal Person, a French language film. Anatomy of a Fall is a 50-50 French language and English film, right? I just watched a couple of weeks ago, Past Lives, a 50-50 Korean and English film. It's just, I agree. I feel enriched by these experiences. And the the, the local cinema experience where you're most likely going to end up watching the big release of the weekend or the week or the blockbuster of the of the season of the year whether it's halloween or christmas or summer i still get that and i still want that but i will always go out of my way to try and watch movies like this whether it's at home or at a local cinema whatever the case may be absolutely i completely agree but yeah that's everything for anatomy of the fall let's get into the last segment of the show let's get wrecked weekly recommendations can i get sanders back you certainly can it's a question do you know who david beckham is no okay I'm joking, yeah, of course. You do know him? Oh, no, okay. What? Oh, I'm just kind of one of the most famous human beings on the planet. Okay, so why do you know him? He's posh. I'm joking. Okay. <laughs> no, he's a football player. Right? Okay, so I even said football. Yeah. <laughs> so the reason I wanted to ask that question is I feel like most people know David Beckham because over the last 30 years, he's been one of the biggest UK celebrity exports we've had, right? And 
a lot of people don't actually know how good he was as a footballer, his professional soccer career or anything like that whatsoever. They just know him because he married a Spice Girl and he's a good looking guy and all that kind of stuff, right? Netflix just recently dropped his life documentary called Beckham. And it's a fascinating look into the rise of David Beckham, the footballer, but also the rise of him as a celebrity. And it's a four episode docuseries. As people know, I am a big docuseries fan. I love watching documentaries. And this basically chronicles all the ups and downs that he went through both in his uh, professional life and his personal life. So I grew up in the UK. I didn't even support the club that he played for right but he was just one of those guys that was an incredible incredible football player like especially during an era where most of the best football players in the world weren't british they were like spanish argentinian and brazilian and german and portuguese this guy broke through the mold on an international level but he was also the first guy to get brand deals and sponsorships and partnerships and actually build his whole kind of brand outside of the game and um i just feel like the documentary does a really, really good job on highlighting everything, especially some of the, the low moments that happened to him, both in the game of football, but his personal life. It's uh, pretty warts and all, man. And uh, I have to say, I think Netflix, once again, man, I think they're the king of documentaries and they've done it again with Beckham. Awesome. That's very cool. Um, for me, it's spooky season. You know what I mean? It's uh, it's time to get scared. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> that's my connective tissue. But so we actually have a, a mutual friend uh, who actually recommended this to me and we ended up watching it together. He's a real piece of shit, but like, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, okay. So there's this movie called the taking of Deborah Logan. All right. This camera crew is following around this woman as she struggles with Alzheimer's. It's kind of a found footage movie hybrid ish, but really it's like this really interesting exploration into aging and the idea of autonomy, like having control over yourself and you, you see someone fall like deeper and deeper into their condition and there's just no cure, mm. right? There's no way out. That's already tragic within itself as a reality of life. But then you make it even more twisted and more horrific and you have a hell of a horror movie and it's perfect for spooky season, especially like, you know, this is probably the time of the year when you're thinking like, well, I want to watch something scary. Yeah, we're not and a, a bunch yeah. of your friends are going to be asking you like, you know, you know movies. What movie should I watch? This is the movie. There Nobody's going to have heard about this. You might as well throw it out there. The Taking of Deborah Logan. Go out of your way. Check it out. It's really fantastic. But yeah, that's everything for this week, gentlemen. Where can anybody find us? We are at Screen Off Script on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube Shorts, and we are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So, hey, listen, do us a favor. Did you like our reviews of movies this week? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Let us know in the comments. And also, hey, if you have any movie that you're excited for or hyped for over the next couple of months that you'd like to go out of our way to watch and review, let us know. So there you go. Write and review us and let us know what you'd like us to review. Awesome. Thank you for checking us out this week, guys. Take care.